Shaking a Nickel Bush by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1962. Chapter 5, Friendly Phoenix. Uh, Lord, you kept everybody safe today as the storms went through the south here. Thank you for guarding Natalie and the kids as they uh, were in the closet. And uh, thank you for the water, the wind, the rain, and uh, the storms it went through. And in your provision, Lord, we get to uh, rejoice in uh, being here on this earth for another day. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. The same Mexican who had driven me out from Wickenburg drove me back. And though I think he was trying to be a little more careful, I was off the seat about as much as I was on it. By the time we reached town, I felt as though I'd been through a dozen more horse falls. My legs were so wobbly when I got out at the depot that I walked as if I were drunk, and my bedroll seemed to weigh a ton. The only thing I could think of was that I'd like uh, of that I'd like to do was to crawl into a soft bed and stay there for a month. But there was no sense in staying in Wickenburg, and Lonnie had said he'd wait a week for me in Phoenix, so I went into the depot to buy a ticket. It was only a little after 9 o'clock when I went in, and I found that the next train didn't leave until 4 in the afternoon, and the ticket office didn't open until 2. And the seats in the depot were harder than the rocks on the horsefall seats sets. So after 10 or 15 minutes, I tried walking around a little to see if I could loosen up the kinks in my leg and backs, legs and back. The first thing I saw when I went outside was a ramshackle old hotel across the street with a sign that read, Clean Rooms, $1. I was lucky enough to get one on the ground floor, so I didn't have to climb any stairs. It wasn't too dirty, and the bed wasn't bad, but I couldn't get any rest on it. In the first place, there wasn't a spot on me that didn't hurt when I lay on it, and in the second place, the keeper for the bolt on the door was missing. When I'd come in there, had been four or five rough-looking men loafing around the lobby of the hotel, and when I'd signed up for my room, the clerk had asked for my dollar in advance. I hadn't expected that when I'd gone in. A five-dollar bill was the smallest I'd had, and it was the outside bill in the roll in my pocket with an elastic band around it. And the first thing I thought of was what Ted had told me about not flashing my roll, so I fiddled around with my fingers till I could slip the band and peel off the five. As I lay there trying to find a comfortable spot, I couldn't help thinking about the way I must have looked while I was fishing around in my pocket for that five. With my fingers as swollen and clumsy as they were, it had taken me a couple of minutes, and a man wouldn't have needed much brains to know I was peeling a bill off a roll that was bigger than I dared to show. With no way of locking my door, and with me too stiffened up to fight back, it would be a cinch for those fellows in the lobby, or any one of them, to knock me for a loop and clean me out. I didn't have any use for $434, and if I'd had any sense, I'd have left most of it with Ted, so he could keep it for me until I saw him at the Littleton Roundup. But I didn't think of that. I wasn't really able to do much thinking during them last couple of days of fall riding, and I didn't try to keep any close track of what I was earning. Right at the beginning, I'd given Ted my mother's address and had told him to send her the money if anything happened to me. Then, when nothing did, I sort of had it in the back of my head that as soon as I got to town, I'd buy a money order at the post office and mail it to her in a letter. But I, as I lay there in the bed, I realized that I couldn't do that either. I'd already written her a fairly big fairy tale about a job I didn't have and about having to use my next few paychecks to pay my, for my outfit. If I should write within a couple of weeks' time and send her $400, even she would have to think I'd robbed a bank or something of that kind. I couldn't write and tell her about the horse falls because that would scare her to death. And I couldn't tell her I'd won it in a poker game, because that would make her feel worse than if I told her about riding in the horse falls. In fact, I couldn't write to her at all, until my hands healed up enough that my writing wouldn't look like hen tracks. I didn't know what I'd have done with my money if I hadn't got, had to go to the outhouse. 
for I hadn't noticed till then how ripped up and dirty my britches were. It was partly to buy some new ones, but mostly to get away from the fellows in the hotel lobby that I went hunting for a dry goods store. Now the way I got an idea. When I went in, I told the man I wanted the longest-legged, smallest-waisted pair of Levi's he had. I was only 26 inches in the waist, but to get long enough legs, I had to buy a pair of 32-36s. Even though I'd worn a company outfit when I was taking the falls, my shirt was nearly as messed up as my britches from practicing, and the man couldn't understand why I wouldn't buy a new one. But I didn't think it would be good business to look too prosperous, so I just asked him if he had a place where I could change britches. When I came out with those Levi's on, I looked more like a scarecrow than when I went in. I'd had to take half a dozen tucks under my belt, and I'd had to make four folds in the bottoms of the legs before my feet would show. From the dry goods store, I went to a bank and bought eight $50 bills, the oldest and softest ones a teller could find. Then I asked him if they had a washroom I could use. They did, but I used it for only about two minutes, just long enough to unfold one leg of my Levi's, lay $420 against the bottom edge, and fold it up again. And I was pretty sure I wouldn't need more than $14 for the next few days. And I was even sure that if anybody robbed me, he wouldn't steal my britches or think to look inside the folds of my cuffs. With the bills being old and soft, they wouldn't rustle, and no one could feel them in there. That seven hours I had to wait in Wickenburg seemed like a week. Even when I didn't have to worry about being robbed, I couldn't rest comfortably in my bed, and it wasn't much more comfortable to hobble around the streets. I went to all three restaurants to see if any of them had stewed chicken or poached fish, but they didn't, so I bought a can of salmon and a quart of milk in a grocery store and took them back to my room. Then I went to the depot, bought my ticket, just to kill time. While the agent was stamping the back of it, I asked, Is the bow-legged freight conductor who runs between here and Phoenix due in this afternoon? Yep, yep, he told me. That'll be Jim McGee, and he ought to pull in long about 3 o'clock. How come you ask? He did me a good turn once, I said, and I just thought I'd like to say hello if I could find him again. You ain't alone, the agent told me as he took my $2 and picked up the change out of the bill, out of the till. Jim, he's got a soft spot for down-and-out cowhands, especially them that's kids and a long ways from home. He didn't get them bow legs of his railroading. Didn't go to breaking, till, breaking freight till uh, 98, if I recollect right. Not till he was pretty well stove up. Time he was your age, he was the bronc peelingest cowhand in these parts. What did he? Bend you a five? No, I said, just did me a good turn when I needed it. If the agent hadn't asked me about the five, I'd have hung around the depot till the freight came in. Then thanked Jim McGee for bringing me out from Phoenix. But I got the idea that the old fellow must have lent many a five to boys who hadn't been as lucky as I, and who had never been able to come back and repay him. I walked up and down the platform three or four times just thinking about it. And the more I thought, the more I wanted to pay back the debt for one going to stop the train to kick you off. They ain't risking a layoff if they get caught hauling you. Wait. Huh. Wanted to pay back the debt for one of those boys. But you couldn't walk up to a man like Jim McGee and hand him a $5 bill along with some goody-goody talk about wanting to pay someone else's debt. That was only one... There was only one thing I'd think of to do, so I went up the main street, bought a box of 10-cent cigars, and was leaning against the end of the depot when Jim's freight pulled up in a, on the siding. I stayed where I was until the engine had been uncoupled, then walked, started to cross the tracks. The old man recognized me because I was halfway to him and called out, Hi there, bub. See you done some riding and come out all in one piece. Did you do any good? Yep, I said I was lucky, so I won't be needing that straw car. I'm going to ride the cushions. Just came over to thank you for giving me a lift, and I bought you a few cigars I didn't have any use for. That one of yours looks kind of worn down. 
It looked as though the stump old Jim had clenched in his teeth was the same one he'd had when he'd brought me out from New Phoenix. He took it out, tossed it away, and said, Now that was really kind of you, but you needn't have fetched along those cigars. Most generally, boys don't bother to come back less than they need another lift, and you already thanked me once. The cigar box wasn't wrapped, and I guess Jim had thought there'd be only two or three in it. When he took it, he looked up quickly and said, Lord Almighty, a whole box full. You didn't go buy them, did you? I thought it would be better to tell him a white lie, so I just said, side bet, and I don't smoke. Lord, Lord, he said as he looked at the box over. Ten centers. Who'd you bet with? One of them Hollywood dudes? You must have done all right. Where are you heading for? California to see the sights? Most of the boys does when they make a stake. No, I told him. I'm going back to Phoenix. I've got a buddy waiting for me there at the stockyards. He's going to find us jobs with one of the drovers or cattlemen that brings stock in. Jim stood for a minute or two, looking down the track and shaking his head slowly. Doubt me he'll do it, he said at last. Doubt me you'd find a job anywhere in the railroad town. Too many soldier boys coming back from the war that can't find nothing to do. Swarming over the freights like a mess of ants. Most of the crews are kicking them off. I know what I told him. My buddy and I got kicked off a dozen times between Tucson and Phoenix. Yep, yep, he said. A man's taking a risk to haul him. Likely to get laid off if a spotter catches him. He looked up and grinned. When I was I bumming the railroads, I'd never bother with no freights. Blind baggage. That's the safe place for a man to travel, the fast one. Them mail trains will make a man take a man further in one night than freights will in a week. I didn't even know there were mail trains, and I had to had no idea as to what blind baggage might be. When I told Jim I didn't uh what, when I told Jim I didn't, he looked up at me sort of questioningly. Take it, you ain't been bumming long, he said. No, I told him. Only, got, only to get from Tucson up here. He turned the cigar box over in his, in his hands and looked down at it for a couple minutes. And he said, oh, well, I ain't recommending it to you. But if you was to get stuck bad and broke, it might be a good thing to know. Then he explained to me that the fast mail trains picked up and dropped off mail sacks on the fly and made stops only at large cities or division points. He said the first car behind the engine was called a blind baggage because the front door was locked tight and the train train crew didn't have a key for it, so they wouldn't get through to see if a bum was riding in the doorway. About all a man's got to do is to flip on one of them blind baggages after the train gets to rolling right good, he told me, and he's all set to the next division point anyways, maybe a couple hundred miles down the line. Don't make no difference if the engine crew spots you flipping on. They ain't going to stop a train to kick you off, and they ain't risking a layoff if they get caught hauling you. I thanked him for telling me about the blind baggage and was putting out my hand to shake with him and say goodbye when he looked up and said, Know what I'd do if I was a young fellow in these times and had made me a little stake and was hunting for a cowhand job? I'd buy me one of them second-hand flivers. A man could drive up a pretty good one, could pick up a pretty good one for about $100, and I'd take off into the backcountry. Any man with a grain of sense will hire a man that's got spunk enough to come hunting a job quicker, and he'll take one of them that's hanging around the railroad towns and the stockyards. Now, you understand, bub, I ain't telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what I'd do if I was a young fellow in times like this. After I thanked him again, he stuck out his hand and said, If you're taking the four o'clock, you'd best pick up your bedroll pretty soon. She's due in about six minutes, and you get this way again, look me up. I reckon... I reckon I'll be around quite a spell yet. It was a long, it was long after dark when I reached Phoenix, so I didn't try to find Lonnie, but took a hotel room about a block up from the depot. Then I found a little restaurant where the owner did the cooking and his wife waited on the counter. At first they thought I'd been beaten up in a fight, but when I told them I was about riding in the horse balls and about my diet, they were real friendly. 
They didn't have much I could eat, but the man opened a can of spinach, heated it, and put on three poached eggs. He said he'd get in some cabbage and celery the next day and would stew me a chicken. Then his wife said that if I'd bring her the flour and mother's recipe, she'd bake me some gluten bread. They were Swedish people, and I think they believed I was Swedish too because my hair was blonde and I had a New England accent. The room I got was a good one, in a nice, clean little bed, hotel, and only a dollar a day. I was at the back on the ground floor, had a good bolt on the door, two large windows, and the best bed I slept in since I left home. Maybe it was just too good, and I was too tired. I went to sleep within two minutes after I crawled in, and I must have slept in the, in the shape of a question mark. It was well after daylight when I woke up, and though I was warm enough, my back and hips were as stiff as if I'd been rolled in a ball and frozen. I wiggled around till I could get my legs over the side of the bed and sit up, but I could barely lean over far enough to get my legs into my britches or stand up or straighten up enough to pull them on. I had to fish for my boots with my feet, then lie down to haul them on. Anybody who saw me going over to breakfast must have thought that I was the hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, those Swedish people at the little restaurant were as good to me as if I'd been their own folks. Mr. Larson heated towels in the oven and put them on my back while I was eating. And after I finished, Mrs. Larson phoned their doctor and sent me up to his office. She must have phoned him again when I was on my way. When I got there, he knew all about my having ridden the horse balls and about the diabetes in my diet. Before he checked me over at all, he made me tell him everything Dr. Gagan and the specialist had said and show him the diet list in my little book. Then he really did check me over. He stripped me as naked as a pig chicken, laid me out on the doctor's table, took my pulse, temperature, and blood pressure, and poked his hands into my belly as if you were eating bread dough. Miraculous! Miraculous, he said three or four times as he poked at me. No rupture of the spleen? That liver seems normal. Kidney's not badly enlarged. Any tenderness there? How about <laughs> How about there? Every part of me was tender, but there was no sharp pain, so I kept shaking my head, and he kept poking, saying, Miraculous! After he had me needed to putty, he put on his stethoscope and listened to my chest and heart. He picked a spot above my wishbone and cocked his head like a robin listening for a worm. Hmm, he said. There's the damage. Considerable regurgitation. That means a leaky heart, I told him. I've had it ever since I was ten. Know the cause, he asked. The doctor in Colorado said it was from riding too many rough horses, I said. Did he tell you to quit riding? Only the rough ones, I said. <laughs> then, you, then you knew better than to go into any such escapade as this intentional falling. I had to do it, I told him. I was broke and couldn't find any other job. Hmm, it's a wonder you weren't broken in two. What's your normal heartbeat? 48. Probably saved your life, he said. These slow hearts will stand more abuse than fast ones. But you've done yours no good. I want you to take a full week of bed rest, or at least confinement to your room. Of course, you can go out for meals, and I want you to see you each day. After I exa I've examined your specimen, I'll write a report to your doctor in the East. What's his name again and his address? Of course, I couldn't let him write to Dr. Gagan, and the only way I could keep him from it was by promising to do what he told me. I stayed in my room all day except when I went to eat, but it was one of the longest days I ever put in. He put some sort of plaster on my back that kept it from aching too much, but I was still bent over like a question mark, and I couldn't be comfortable either lying down or sitting up. Then, too, there was nothing but local news in the paper, and the magazines I bought had only one interesting. The magazine I bought had only one interesting story in it. I think I might have been a little homesick that day if it hadn't been for the Larsons. I didn't go to lunch till well past noontime, so I wouldn't be too much trouble to them. And when I got there, Mr. Larson had a chicken fricasseed for me, crisp celery stalks, and cabbage boiled with caraway seeds. 
Besides that, he'd gotten hold of some gluten flour, so Mrs. Larson copied down Mother's recipe and baked bread for me that afternoon. I think it would have been better than Mother's if she hadn't put in a big handful of caraway seeds, and, of course, I didn't did tell her I disliked them. Even with the seeds, my supper that night was the best I'd had in a long, long time. There was hot bread and butter, more cabbage and celery, and a whole broiled fish. I don't know what kind it was, but it was fresh, and it was good. The next morning, my back was a lot better, and I could straighten up pretty well, but my legs were still so stiff that the muscles pulled at every step. After the doctor had smeared salve on my face and hands, he listened to my heart for three or four minutes, nodded, and said, A slight improvement already. A couple of weeks rest should repair the damage fairly well. I've been worried about not letting Lonnie know I was back in Phoenix, and I thought I might be able to work some of the kinks out of my legs if I went to find him. So I told the doctor, I've got a buddy waiting for me down at the stockyards, and he'll be worried if I don't let him know I'm back in town. Wouldn't it be all right if I walked that far, very slowly? Very slowly, he told me. That heart must have complete rest until nature has had time to repair it. Otherwise, you might be an invalid for the remainder of your life. I grinned and said, well... If the specialists were right, it would take, it would be a very long drag. I don't know. I don't know, he said, sort of questioningly. That specimen I examined yesterday wasn't as bad as I expected, under the circumstances. I'm rather inclined to agree with your family physician. That is, if you behave yourself, stick rigidly to your diet and get as much sunshine as you can on your body. Nature is a wonderful healer, and there is no better medicine than sunshine. I waited until I had my shirt back on, then gave him one of the report cards to fill out for Dr. Gagan, but I didn't leave it for him to mail. When I checked it with the copy of the one I'd made for myself, I found them almost exactly alike, so I knew I couldn't have done myself too much damage in the horse falls. On my way to the stockyards, I poked along slowly, stopping to look at the old guns in the pawn shop windows, or at anything else that would kill a little time, and I had one of the finest pieces of luck that I ever had in my life. In one of the windows, there were a dozen or so brightly painted water jars, and inside the dingy little shop, an old Mexican was shaping another one on a potter's wheel. The minute I saw him, I knew I'd found exactly what I needed to take up my time during the week I'd have to stay in my room. Okay, so we're halfway through uh, chapter uh, five. And I'm going to have to pause because this is a long chapter. So, I love you guys. Have a great rest of your evening. And I will pick up Friendly Phoenix tomorrow.